0: Come with me, everyone. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. Mm. Man, I bet plenty of you can whistle, too. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, we better not. Go ahead and uh, yeah, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, um, chapter 4. 1 Corinthians, chapter 4, and for all of you folks in in internet land. they missed the announcements at church, but we are live streaming, so they'll get this. Easter services are on Easter Sunday. Uh, sunrise service is here at 6.30, 10 a.m. service at 10 a.m. Breakfast potluck in between. I bet you could have guessed most of that. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 continues Paul's argument, Paul's conversation with his beloved Corinthians, this dysfunctional family that is just so very dear to him. Um, Starting in verse 1, I'll be reading through uh, verse 5 of chapter 4. It says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know nothing against myself yet I am not justified by this but he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will bring both the light both bring to light chill, uh, I can't read that line who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts then each one's praise will come from God. Let's pray once more. Jesus, we pray that your spirit would be with us as a teacher, as a guide, opening our eyes, opening our hearts to receive spiritual truths that we in our fallen state can't even imagine touching uh, without the awakening, the quickening of your spirit. Um, So we ask for understanding, Lord. We ask that we would know what you want to say, that we would hear what the spirit has to say for the church. And then we ask that um, more than our minds, but our hearts would be quickened, that this would, this would um, propel us into obedience and worship. We, we do worship you. We are gathered around your word now with grateful hearts, knowing that we are on the receiving end of this relationship. You are giving to us great things, every spiritual blessing in Christ. And we want to, to have the proper attitude of humility in receiving your word by your Spirit in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So this is this is a weird little passage, isn't it? It's a it's an interesting little passage that, that fits into Paul's larger conversation about how he preaches the gospel and how he has served the Corinthian church. But we have an opportunity to focus in on another topic that is central to the Corinthian problem, that is. Um, a really big issue for them and kind of colors all their other problems. And remember, there's plenty of them. And that issue is the, the fear of man. This is something the scripture talks about that, that none of the good guys are in favor of. Uh, fear of man. In, in a previous sermon, we've compared the Corinthians with those in the gospel of John uh, who loved the praise of men rather than the praise of God. Do you remember that when we were going through John? That's the fear of man, um, where you love the praise of men. And so you behave in a certain way to gain the praise of men, even if that behavior is not something praiseworthy, that is not something God would compliment you for. That's the fear of man. So Proverbs 25, 29 says that it's a snare. It's a trap that will hold you until the one who set the trap can come and destroy you. That's how traps work. Paul has been rescuing the Corinthians from this and many other snares that they had gotten caught in. The Corinthians cared deeply about what people think, uh, specifically about what their culture thought of them. Um, They they wanted very much to sound smart, to sound wise, to appear like they, the Corinthian Christians, are just, you know, the upper crust in every way. But Paul, in this passage, encourages them to live not for the short-term praise of men, but for the end, when, if you look at verse 5 there, when each one's praise will come from God. Paul is asking the church to look to him as an example. He does this uh, more than once with the Corinthians, and he does this more with the Corinthians, I think, than with any other church. It's the Corinthians that he will say with crystal clarity, imitate me. He does it once here in chapter 4 and then again in chapter 11. And here he is telling them, consider us. Think of me, us, the, the apostles, when you think about how to live in a certain way. You can be confident that Paul is not talking like this because he wants the people in Corinth to put him on a pedestal. He's not saying imitate me because I love being the center of attention. No, he's he's having to say this. He has to say consider us this way, as stewards, as servants, as, you know, bottom rung uh, entry level employees in the kingdom of God. Consider us that way because the Corinthians were already thinking about Paul and the apostles in another way, in the wrong way. In fact, Paul has gone to some extreme measures in these first four chapters, first three chapters, to take himself and the other apostles down from the little cardboard pedestal that the Corinthians had placed them up on. He says, I'm a fool. I'm a fool for Christ. That's who I am. And you say, I'm of Paul, and you think that's important. It's not. It's not at all. He says, consider us this way instead. The schisms that came up uh, in Corinth was because they were there because the Corinthians were making too much of their leaders according to the wisdom of the world. And they were esteeming too little the wisdom of heaven. And they, they were actually thinking of Paul as too little according to one standard, a heavenly standard, and considering him too highly according to their broken worldly standard. Worldly wisdom thinks that servants are the lowest and that king type Leaders are the highest. Heavenly wisdom does say that you are kings, but Jesus turns this leadership philosophy right side up by washing feet and telling the apostles, go and do likewise. And he says, I am the greatest among you, and this is how I behave. Jesus says the least of you is the greatest, and the greatest among you will be a servant. So I say that the Corinthians were making too much of their leaders by making them into rock star cult leaders, but this was only according to the mistaken wisdom of the world. And Paul knows it's servants who are the real leaders. And according to the wisdom of heaven, the Corinthians had a long way to go, and they needed a serious shift in their perspective. They needed to see that these leaders, Paul, Apollos, Peter, were leaders only because they were pouring their lives out like a drink offering on the altar. And Paul does a very bold thing that shows his amazing humility, really. He says, think of us as servants. We're all fine being servants, right? Until someone actually treats us that way. We're all fine with being servants until someone says, will you do this thing for me that I don't want to do? And then we're like, no, I I guess I'm not good at being a servant. Paul says, bring it on. Think of me as your servant. Put me in that place. Consider us. In fact, he's speaking for the other guys too. He's like, next time Peter visits you know, big shot Peter. Yeah. Consider him. He's your servant. He's just showing up to to bless you guys. Consider us as servants. And in second Corinthians, he'll get more into how, how these apostles, how Paul is a servant to the church and the great expense that, that, that comes with that title and that role. But here he says, let us, uh, or he says, consider us as servants of Christ. So again, the Corinthians problem, it was a double-edged sword. It cuts both ways. They thought too highly of their leaders by making them leaders of factions. Assuming that Paul and Peter wanted to be presidents of their own churches or something, their own leaders of their own denominations. And Paul corrects that error by saying, consider us as servants of stewards of of his church, of Christ's church, not our church. Not as leaders for you to rally around in your divisions. But remember, while some of the Corinthians did say in error, I am of Paul, perhaps 75% or so of the church were saying, I'm not of Paul. They were of Apollos or Peter or the really super spiritual one saying, I am of Jesus. It's like, yeah, okay, we get that. It sounds great, but you're missing the point. And so while some put Paul in a weird kind of limelight and considered Paul's words as higher than Peter's or higher than Apollos or someone else, there were plenty more in Corinth who were just discounting what Paul said entirely. They were they were saying, no, no, I, I got a note from Peter. I'm going to do things Peter way. I don't need any of the words of Paul. They're saying, Apollos is our pastor. He's the ones we listen to. We don't need these uh, apostles. So when Paul says, consider us, you see, he puts himself in the company of these other leaders, charismatic, talented teachers like Apollos, apostolic heavyweights like Peter, and sickly, blinded, feeble Paul, all on the same team. And he says, you need to consider us together, same, same team, consider us as servants, low in the view of the world, right? Servants, bottom rung but first in the eyes of Christ. And he says, consider us as servants of Christ. Now I want you to think about this. Paul says he's a servant. They might think that's low, but he's like, I'm a servant in the house of the Messiah. I'm a servant of Christ. that kind of elevates that position a little bit, doesn't it? Paul says he's a servant of Christ. Think about this. Christ is the master. Paul is the servant. How does Paul serve Christ? Paul pours out his life in serving the church. This is how Paul serves Christ, by serving Christ's body. Paul is saying, remember who we work for. (laughs) Remember that uh, the the apostles here aren't serving themselves. They're not promoting themselves. They're serving Christ. I work for Christ. He is my boss. And Apollos works for Christ. And Peter works for Christ. We're on the same team And it's a good team to be on. And the boss is amazing. And our job is important. Not only are you to consider us as servants of Christ, but also as servants of the mysteries of God. Servants and stewards. The word Paul uses for servants isn't the one used elsewhere. A lot of times in the Bible you'll see the word servant and it's, it's translated diakonos, where we get the word deacon from. Not this time. The word he uses here, translated servant, it's, it's only used here and in John twice. And both times in John it's translated officers, interestingly enough. So the idea does carry some sort of authority Like you've been deputized for a job, but it's authority that comes from the one who authorizes the servant, right? That's kind of the idea of this kind of servant. The word for servant here, hyperitas, it sort of carries the idea of a middle manager. It's someone who's definitely not the boss, but they are in charge of some stuff. Same, as, same with the steward. The word for steward there, it's oikonomos, where, and you're getting your full serving of Greek today. It's got to last you a long time because this isn't usual. This isn't normal for me. But it's, it's uh, the words from house and law. Okay? You have the word uh, house and law. You put it together, and you get the word steward. A steward doesn't own the house, and he doesn't make the laws, but he enforces the laws of the house. You could almost imagine like the chief butler or something of a big mansion. This word is used in Galatians 4, 2, and the NASB actually translates the word as manager. So what does Paul say when he says, you need to think of us like this. Think of us as servants and, and stewards. What does he say that they are entrusted with? It's the mysteries of God. The apostles and those who have led the church after them have managed the mysteries of God in the sense that they have protected them, preserved them, and distributed them according to the law of the house. Now there's a few things that Paul refers to as a mystery in his writings. Later on in this letter, we'll talk about the mystery of the end of the world. In Romans, he talks about the mystery of the grafting in of Gentiles into the rootstock of Israel. That's a mystery. Um, and we should, we should keep as close as we can to the immediate context. Paul has already used the word mystery in Corinthians after Paul had told him about the strong, even exaggerated emphasis he places on the crucifixion of Christ, right? Saying, I've determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And then he clarified that the wisdom of God and the strength of God and the power of God was most clearly seen in the cross and crucifixion. And he says in chapter two, verse two, he says, well, I already mentioned this. I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And then in chapter two, verse seven, he says, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom, which God ordained from the, age, from the before the ages for our glory. So while the apostles were certainly stewards of the mysteries, this, this is the big one. This is Paul's one big main thing that he's saying he's a steward of. He's a steward of the mystery of Christ's crucifixion and all the blessings and riches that flow to us from that source. He is the keeper, the manager of this message. Christ died for our sins. He was buried, and he rose again. And it is in his death that the deep things of God are revealed to us. And it is in his death that the riches of God are distributed to us. God has made known himself. God has made himself known to us in Christ. And Christ most clearly displays the love of the Father, not in parables or healings or teachings or good works. Christ most clearly displays the love of the Father at the cross. The mystery of the gospel is what Paul and the apostles and church leaders were entrusted with. Another note on this word for steward literally a keeper of the house, we are told that priests are stewards of the house of God. And Jesus himself is, according to Hebrews 10, verse 21, a priest over the house of God. And we know, of course, that we are a kingdom of priests. So you have a lot of metaphorical language overlapping here. Um, We we know from... uh, 1 Peter 2.5, we're called a royal priesthood. And then Revelation 1.6 and Revelation 5.10, we're called a kingdom of priests. Paul has already drawn the conclusion in Corinthians that the house that he has been entrusted with is the temple of the people of God. You glance back at chapter 3. Chapter 3, he went into detail by saying, you are the house. He says, I'm a a builder of a house. God has given me a, a gift for building. The foundation is Christ. You're the house that we're building. And then he says, the house isn't just a house, it's the temple. You collectively make up the temple. And now he uses the word house in the word steward, and he says, I'm a caretaker of the temple. And Paul is, is declaring the truth that John and Peter and others, whoever wrote Hebrews, gets the idea that we have a priestly ministry. We're handling holy things. The mysteries of God. Mysteries. Not everyone knows. Not everyone touches them. Not everyone everyone gets this. But Christians in the house of God get to handle the mysteries. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. These are truths that you have been entrusted with that not just anyone can toss around and handle. You can handle it. Why? Because he's resurrected you with him. You've touched the holy things. You have been sanctified on the same altar. And Paul saying, you're a house, you're a temple, I'm the caretaker of the house. To be a steward of a house is one thing, but to be a steward of the house of God is a priest. And one of the things a priest does is they handle holy things. Priests touch things that no one else touches. And so once more, I want you to see that Paul is placing himself and the other apostles in a place of servants, humble servants, following the best servant. Jesus, but also he's saying that we're servants who have been entrusted with things of the utmost importance, the holy things of God, the mysteries of God. There's an emphasis here on humility and reverence. This sharp contrast between humility and glory lives in that middle space of reverence. Paul being a servant and being a, a king it's carried out further in Paul's dialogue with the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul uses the famous jars of clay imagery, not the band, but the Bible verse. He says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power of God, that the, ex- that the excellence may be in the power of God and not in us. Paul is a servant and wants you to think of him as a servant. He's a jar of clay and not a shiny china dish, but inside is the actual glory of God. Paul's a servant. He wants you to think of him and all the other servants too. Like all the Christian leaders that have ever existed. I think Paul would like to just put his arm around them and bring them in. It's like, we're all servants. That's what this is supposed to be. Christian leadership is serving other people. That's what it's supposed to be. But Paul also is is quick to say that these servants over here are caring for the mysteries of God, for the holy things, for the most valuable things. This is how Paul wants to be thought of. We know that Paul's final goal is not just to fill the space in someone else's thoughts. He's not think of me, think of me fondly. Uh, the only reason he wants the church to think of him is so that they can imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. We know that's, what he's talk, take, that's where he's taking his argument because it's in verse 16 of this chapter. And we know from the rest of the testimony of scripture that Paul was not the only steward of the gospel and neither were the apostles. But every disciple of Christ has been entrusted with the care and keeping and distribution of the holy things, the gospel, of the mysteries of God, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is how we can all be a kingdom of priests, not a kingdom with priests. As Paul has already said, using the metaphor of building a temple, let each one take care how he builds. This is not a responsibility for Paul and Peter or just the pastors. It is a responsibility for the members of every church. So as we think with the Corinthians, as we think of Paul as a servant, as a steward, as a priest entrusted by a king to take care of holy things, you can think of yourself in the same way. And just as Paul, by drawing this picture of himself for the consideration of the Corinthians, this should prevent them from thinking either too highly or too low of Paul. So also you will be prevented of thinking too highly of yourself if you realize you are a servant like Christ who gave himself for us, who washes feet, who gives his life for others. But you'll also be protected from thinking of yourself uh, too, too lowly because you have been entrusted with that which is most valuable in all of creation. Christ and him crucified. It's Christ and him crucified. You have been entrusted with the resurrection of the dead both the message of that and the power that is in you. The same power that Christ, raised Christ from the dead is in you. You are a priest. You're not the sacrifice. You're not the altar. You're not really the holy thing. Uh, the, the word saint kind of means holy one, so you maybe, maybe you're a holy thing. But you've been ordained and anointed to represent God to people and, and to intercede on their behalf. As a steward, a caretaker, you have a job to do. And faithfulness is required. And this is where Paul is bringing the Corinthians. Verse 2, it says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. It was Paul's goal to hear Christ tell him, Well done and good and faithful servant. I'm sure of it. Make it your life's goal to hear Christ tell you, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. This is our, our hope. We have a living hope. It's Christ. To meet him is the hope we hold. You have been entrusted with mysteries. It's your job to take care of them, defending good doctrines against bad. It's your job to keep them, obey what is to be obeyed, follow the examples that are offered in the gospel, take up your cross and follow the one who died for you. And then it's your your responsibility to distribute them, preach the gospel in season and out. Be faithful with that which has been entrusted to you. It's what it means to be a steward in the house of God, a priest. Paul was faithful with what was given to him, and he's inviting the church to imitate him in this. But remember, this section is largely a defense. So this verse was probably written mostly so Paul could say, as a steward, guys, I've been faithful. Seriously, look, I did a, I've been doing a good job. He says, I was given the truth, and I gave that truth to you. I was entrusted with the mystery of the cross, and I've preached nothing else. So he's saying all of this to prove to the Corinthians that he has been faithful, not to the world's idea of what a preacher should be, an eloquent, sophist, that kind of thing, but he's been faithful to Christ who called him. Paul has been faithful. Now, I want you to consider the awkward position that Paul finds himself in, right? Defending yourself at this level is uncomfortable, and the reason he has to bring this up in the first place is because he was accused of being less than an apostle, and that's uncomfortable. Most people don't want to spend this much time talking about their own best qualities and qualifications. So Paul has to defend himself because in this case, defending the messenger was a defense of the message of the cross. But still awkward, right? It's awkward for Paul because he knows that he's in danger of, fa- of sounding very insecure. Like, I need you guys to say I did a good job. Like, he cares too much about what people think about him. So he begins to explain his true position, which of course can put you in an even more awkward situation, but I think he handled it well. Verse three at the beginning, it says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. He's saying, I don't need the gold star. Your low opinion of me, which you've made very clear in your last letter, the, the, the very low opinion you have of me, that, that doesn't actually matter a whole lot to me. It's a very small thing. Or if I was judged by a, a human court, a court of law, they would say what they wanted and and that would also be a very small thing because I don't work for those guys. And then he goes further by saying, in fact, I don't even judge myself. Now, whenever we talk about the word judge, we have to distinguish between the kind of judgment that is merely discernment and a kind of judgment that is sentencing. And every time you see the word judge, you kind of have to ask this question. I would say Paul does judge himself in that he would examine himself. He tells others to do the same. Just as he, uh, you know, tries to pursue Christ and and count all other things as loss, the way he does in, in Philippians, right? You look at the word, which is the word of God, which is a mirror, and you see what doesn't match up. You see where you're lacking. So that's a kind of judgment, but it's not really the kind of judgment Paul's talking about here. Paul does not judge himself or condemn himself because, verse 4, he says, I know nothing against myself. Now, before we get to that, let's stay in verse 3 for a second. Paul is saying it's a small thing that I should be judged by you or anybody else for that matter. If he's using the word judge the same throughout this passage, then he means to pass sentence on, to condemn Okay. He doesn't care a whole lot if the Corinthians say he's weak or dumb or whatever. They don't get the final word. And then he expands the scope and says, don't take it personally. I don't care about your opinion, but I don't care about anyone's opinion. If I was brought to court and judged, that would be a very small thing too. And we see that in Acts, right? He's condemned over and over again. And so he's, he's, uh, He's in a place where he he can prove by his record that he considers the final word of a court to be a very small thing. Now, even the modern world might be impressed with Paul up to this point um, in our modern world. We like independent spirits. Paul marches to the beat of his own drum. He doesn't care what anybody else thinks. We're like, yeah, I don't care about anyone, any of those things. Yeah, I'm like Paul. But then Paul goes on and he says, I don't even judge myself. And if you connect these three points, then you what you get is Paul saying, it's a small thing what you think of me, it's a small thing what they think of me, and it's a small thing what I think of me too. Not even Paul gets the final word about Paul. And Paul right here is saying, my opinions about me aren't what matters most. Remember, he and you are servants of Christ. It is Christ who judges you. He gets the final word. And this is what he says in verse five, but we have to deal with this bit of verse four where Paul says, I know nothing against myself. That sounds a little bit arrogant, doesn't it? Because we don't have to think too hard to find fault with ourselves. So what is this about? Paul thinks he's sinless. No, we know he doesn't think that because we have a whole lot of Paul's writings. He confesses that he is the least of saints, the chief of sinners. And, and even as he neared his death, he had said, I have not yet attained. I am not there yet. So how can he have this view of sin that he says, I'm the chief of sin. I'm the worst. My sin is worse than any of your sin. I am the worst. But then here he can say, "Uh, I don't know anything against myself. He can have this view of sin, the same one that John held when he said, the one who says he has no sin deceives himself, makes God a liar. But then at the same time, Paul can say, I know nothing against myself. Two reasons. One, he's not talking about the whole of his life. He's talking about his role as the shepherd to the Corinthians. He's saying, I was a faithful servant to you. I did a good job pastoring you guys. In this role, in that specific role, he knows nothing against himself. But I think there's more to it than that. I think the key is in knowing who judges him and by what standard. Because Paul has said, I'm a servant of Christ. In the end, whatever praise comes my way is only going to come from God. Paul knew that what he himself thought of himself didn't matter because Christ was judging him. And I believe Paul knew, in a very real way, the forgiveness of Christ. I think he realized that more and more than many of us can imagine. I believe that Paul could say, I know nothing against myself, only because Paul was so confident that because of the cross of Christ, his one big message, because of the blood of Christ, Paul would be wrong to count against himself those sins for which Christ died. He says, if God truly has nothing against me, if I am justified, then it would be wrong of me to say, well, I'm not. That would be just the same way as saying, I don't have sin, even though you know you have sin. You're calling God a liar. Well, to, say, to be forgiven and then say you're not forgiven, that's also to call God a liar. So Paul could say the same thing Luther would eventually say. He says, I am at the same time sinner and just. I'm a justified sinner. That's what I am. Paul could say, I have nothing against myself because Christ died. And then if he's honest about his sin, he could say, yeah, I'm full of it. I sin all the time. I haven't attained. And Christ forgives sins of whom I am chief. Paul knew that no matter what his life consisted of, the truth is that it was no longer he who lived, but Christ who lived in him. And the final word did not belong to his sins, Your sins, they don't belong to sin or the one who committed them. The final word belongs to Christ who justifies the ungodly. Paul was confident in faith. (laughs) And because of this, he could be confident in his justification. He could be confident in God's grace. Now, as we seek to follow Paul, imitate Paul as he follows, imitates Christ, we want to be like him in many ways. He's not perfect. Paul's not a perfect guy, but he's been given to us as an example to follow. So we follow him and want to be like him as servants of Christ. We want to be like Paul in knowing that we too are stewards of the mysteries of Christ. We handle holy things as priests to our God. And we want to be like Paul in this freedom from the fear of man. He considers it such a small thing for anyone to judge him. You know He considers it a small thing when people judge, judged him for a job that they didn't hire him for. It's like, I don't work for you, I work for Jesus want to be like that. We don't want want people to determine how we see ourselves. And, newsflash, your people. (laughs) I don't want my word about myself to be the final word. We are who you say we are. That's our prayer. That's our confession. We want to follow Paul in these things. But we also want to follow Paul to the place where he can say, I know nothing against myself. We want to arrive here because we love Christ and we hate sin. And we we want to have a, a clear conscience. We want to arrive here because we are walking in the light as he is in the light. We want to arrive there where Paul is following in Paul's footsteps of living our whole life for the sake of the gospel and stewards of the gospel. But we also want to arrive here because we have an unbreakable, unshakable confidence in the forgiveness of sins. I want that faith to be strengthened. We want to follow Paul in his walk of faith where he could be confident in God's intention and God's ability to make us white as snow. To finish what he started in you. To finish the good work begun in you. We will constantly be in need of self-examination. That kind of judging. Right? And confession. And repentance. But that's just all part of taking up your cross. That's discipleship. It's necessary for your growth. And if you didn't need growth, you'd be dead. Or raptured, maybe, Elijah, chariots of fire. You will fail, and you will be restored. And you need to check in with your soul about how that's going. But in every moment of failure, it is the will of the Lord to restore you and establish your confidence again in his forgiveness. In fact, more than just establish it, but strengthen that confidence to a place that has never been before. We read in the Gospels, the one who's forgiven much loves much. So to realize his will of restoration, of his, his, the, the complete nature of, of his forgiveness, where you're able to say, I know nothing against myself. That's, those are the words of someone who has been forgiven much, because they, and now they love much. God wants you to be confident in his love for you, his commitment to you. To quote the Jesus storybook Bible, his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. If you believe that he has nothing against you, then you would be forced to confess. It would be the height of arrogance and unbelief for you to go against him and hold things against yourself. Read verse four again, if you would. For I know nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. Paul is confident, but again, it's not his confidence that justifies him. It's the other way around. It's because he knows he's justified that he is confident. And his confidence is in this fact. He who judges me is the Lord. The Lord will pass the final sentence on Paul. He will pronounce the verdict. And Paul already knows what it is. He says, I'm looking forward to a crown. That's what I'm going to get. He knows he's forgiven. Paul knows And he writes in in Romans 8, 29 and 30 that he was foreknown, predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, that he had been called, justified, and even glorified. He's read the end of the book. And then he goes on in Romans 8 and he says, then what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's that attitude that he brings to the Corinthians in this part of the letter. It's, It's in having this attitude, this confidence that God is for us, that we can be completely Free from the fear of man and thinking thinking that the things other people say are important. When Paul says, he who judges me is the Lord, that starts to sound scary until you realize that Paul is so utterly confident that the judge is on his side, that the judge is satisfied with what Paul has to offer, that God is satisfied with Christ. And it is Christ and Christ alone that we have to offer to the Father. In verse 5, it says, Therefore... Judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. There's a lot happening in these five verses. There's a lot of application in these five verses. We see where we have to go, where we're following Paul. He says, imitate me, so we want to try. We want to be servants of Christ Like him, we want to be faithful stewards of the mysteries of God. Like him, we want to consider man's judgments a very small thing. That's a snare. That's a trap. We don't want to live there. And we want to have the confidence in God's favor given to us through the crucifixion of Jesus. But there's more. All of this can be lifted and applied into our context very easily, but we need to return to the original context. The Corinthians were in the wrong when they judged Paul. And so Paul says, Don't do that. Now, fear of man runs both ways. We become consumed with the fear of what people think. Then we become what we fear and are quick to judge others unnecessarily. When Paul says, judge nothing before the time, he's talking about the end of time. And he's picking up on a story that had already been told by Jesus. You're familiar with it. Jesus tells a story in Matthew 13 about a man who plants a field with wheat. And then an enemy comes in and and sows weeds that look like wheat called tares. And then when they start to come up, the servants realize this, and they go and they, they, they ask if they can go weed the garden. They say, well, "We'll take out the weeds, we'll leave the wheat. And the master says, Matthew 13:29, No, lest while you gather up the tares you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Why did Jesus need to tell this story? Because he knew that there would be Corinthians someday. would divide into smaller and smaller factions, shouting down the other groups saying, we're the real church. You're not. We're of Paul. He's an apostle. You're only of Apollos. He's not even an apostle at all. Jesus knew that when the Corinthians realized there are such things as false converts, there are. He knew that there's going to be some who make it their hobby to search out those false converts and label them and throw them out. Jesus says that's not the plan. It never has been. The Corinthians were going to judge Paul so that they could further divide the church and say, We're the ones, we're the church. The of Paul is the church, or the of Paulos is that's the church. Paul is saying, Don't judge until the end. Just be the church. Each one of us needs to know that as servants and stewards, we have been given specific directives. You have a job. Here's what the job isn't weeding the garden. That's good, because I don't like weeding. It's not a chore I enjoy. Your job is to be faithful in your calling as a steward of mysteries. And as we'll see in this letter, it is your calling to use your gift to build up the temple of God, to build up the body of Christ. Now in chapter 5, Paul does say, you've got a guy at your church you need to throw out. There was a place for that. But then you fast forward even more. In 2 Corinthians, he says the only reason for that was so that you could restore him in a spirit of gentleness, which was not the heart of the Corinthians. Even church discipline in its most severe is done for the purpose of uniting the church. So as we walk in Paul's footsteps, let us let his hope be our hope. It wasn't in passing judgment on those who were different or even those who were wrong. Uh, Though he addresses these things as a pastor must, his joy and his hope was the day when the Lord would come, when light floods the scene, when each one's praise will come from God, meaning when the best thing said about you will not be what that guy says or what those guys say or what you think about yourself and your arrogance. The praise will come from God. He will see you and say, good and faithful servant, well done. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And Paul is directing our attention and our affection and our hope to that day. Seeing Christ as our Lord has a unifying factor in his church. We all work for the same guy. We've all been called by the same Lord. We're all in the same house, the same temple, the same priesthood. We're handling the same holy things. And our hope then is not to make sure we're better than one of the other priests or divide or, or, or be schismatics like the Corinthians. Our great hope is for the appearing of the Lord when all will be made light and, and the one Lord will do as he pleases in his church that he keeps clean. Let's go to him in prayer now. Jesus, we thank you that this church is yours that the church is yours. You are a good and gracious, generous God. We pray that our hope would be in the things worth hoping for, that the smaller distractions of the opinions of others and the criticism or praise of others, that none of this would weigh us down or distract us from the real prize and the race that is set before us. Pray that you would bless your church here bless us with eyes fixed on jesus bless us with a full assurance of faith that we may know we have eternal life that we may be fully confident in the complete efficacy of the blood of jesus on the cross we praise you we worship you we love you because you first loved us in jesus name amen amen Amen. Amen. please stand are sent. Mm -hmm. Go make disciples.